Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom, friends. Great to see you for debate number 17, a life of study versus a life of action. What is greater? Okay, let's see a little poll here. Take a very empirical assessment of what the world believes. <laughs> At least the group here, you're with us. Okay, how do I operate in the world? I am primarily a thinker, a person of the mind. I like to act, but I'm most comfortable in a learning reflective space. Option three, I'm reflective, but I feel more fulfilled when acting. Or I am primarily a doer, a person of action. Let's see what your vote is here on your own personality, your own disposition, on how you experience the realms of thought and action. Okay. Everybody made a vote? Okay. Okay. No one here is, is, lives a life of the mind <laughs> or, or, or solely a life of the mind. A quarter are thinkers with some inclinations to act. Half of us are reflective, but feel most fulfilled through acting. And 25% are really immersed in the life of action. Okay, very interesting. Um, by the way, I told my, uh, my son, who's turning seven this week, I told him uh, I, was giving, uh, I was doing a class today. And he said, this is great public speaking. He said, you should crowd surf. You should do crowd surfing. <laughs> so I don't know how, what, how Lev thinks I spend my day, but, um, but he thinks that um, if I'm giving a talk, that that should involve some crowd surfing. <laughs> So um, uh, first of all, I said, that's not exactly in the rabbinic job description. And secondly, it's on Zoom anyways, but he got the idea somehow as a six-year-old that giving a talk to people means um, you can jump into the crowd. <laughs> so, so that's kind of funny. Um, anyways, okay, friends. So friends, a life of study or a life of action? Here we go. Is religion fundamentally about a life of study or a life of action? Big question. Is Judaism primarily about the inner psyche or the external world? Are we to focus on the self or improving the lives of others? The Talmudic rabbis debated the relationship between learning and action. Here is the most well-known passage from Kiddushin. 
Rav Tarfon and some elders were reclining in an upper chamber in the house of Nitsa in Lod when this question came up, which is greater study or action? Rav Tarfon spoke up and said, action is greater. Rabbi Akiva spoke up and said, study is greater. The others then spoke up and said, study is greater because it leads to action. So friends, unpause yourself for a moment. What do you make of this debate here? Who do you agree with here? Judaism, yes, please. Michael. Um, it, it's a continuum. Um, study is supposed to drive action, yet action is supposed to really, uh, again, I think we're talking about the orthodox reference, that, that intensive study is really the goal and action is to facilitate that. Okay, very interesting. Very interesting. Okay, so, okay, someone else. Eric, you say you vote with the others. What does that mean? Votes with the other. Oh, oh, okay, he agrees with the others. Okay, so again, Rev Tarfon thinks we are here to repair the world, to do um, a life of mitzvot. You gotta act. Study is not primary, Rev Tarfon says. Rabbi Kiva says, no, 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 we are people of the book. We are people of study. Yes, you got to do some things in your life, but we are people of the mind. And then what is the conclusion exactly? Study is greater because it leads to action. Well, what if it didn't? If it didn't, which is greater? They assume it leads. Is that true? Anyone else want to weigh in here? I, I think something to consider is that they it was a one or the other kind of answer and the others mm -hmm. kind of more uh, try to break it down more qualitatively speaking. Uh, one can have action without study. One can study without action. Uh, study is greater, with the, which means there's a greater pro uh, prospect or likelihood that one will uh, a cause and effect. Great. Great. Now, couldn't they have ended with the opposite? Could they have said action is greater because it'll lead to study? Is that? I don't just, see. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just like, yeah, Lauren, please. I don't, see, I don't see action leading to study. Um, I, I see study, like if you're going to take an action, you've got to know what you're doing and what the action's all about, right? So that's why the study is. The precursor to action, although it may not always lead to it, but I think action without a pre-study, without knowing what you're doing, what you're taking action on, um, can result in some real serious problems. Thank you. Problems. Lauren, by the way, for, for next time you speak, I think your mic is not plugged in. Okay. You're Very right. good. But, but, I but I caught most of what you said. Okay, good. We, we will come back to this debate, friends. Action for the rabbis could have meant observance of mitzvot and not action in the general sense that we mean today as moderns when we think about activism, for example. I wonder whether Rabbi Akiva, even though he championed study over action, thought about action as activism in the sense that he was, along with many of his contemporaries, all about engaging in civil disobedience to the rules of Romans who prohibited some study and some action. But we can think about the category which we call mitzvot 
as going beyond those rules that we find in the Torah or in the Shulchan Aruch as being a category aligned with this colloquial usage by so many today to include all good deeds, all good that is done to help others. So friends, in the end, the rabbis taught that the primary purpose of learning is not merely seeking truth, which many saw as secondary, but rather to serve as a catalyst for improved action. Hey, there was I, a famous I, saying I, of Rava, the purpose of learning is repentance and good deeds. Oh, so that's the purpose, Rava says. Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, the highly regarded Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshiva Taratzion, grappled with the sad and disturbing phenomenon that spending one's entire day engrossed in learning can sometimes paralyze one from moral action. Listen to this. A couple, a couple of years ago, after we moved to Yerushalayim from New York, I was once walking with my family in the Beit Israel neighborhood where Rav Isser Zalman Meltzer used to live. For the most part, it consists of narrow, narrow alleys. We came to a corner and found a merchant stuck there with his car. The question came up as to how to help him. It was a clear case of Purika Uta'ina, helping one load or unload their burden. There were some youngsters there from the neighborhood who judging by their looks were probably 10 or 11 years old. They saw that this merchant was not wearing a kippah, i.e. he was not publicly observant, not publicly traditional. So they began a whole pill pool based on the Gemara and Pesachim about whether they should help him or not. They said, if he walks about bareheaded, presumably he doesn't separate his trumot or maeserot, so he's suspect of eating and selling tithe produce. I wrote to Rabbi Soloveitchik, which was his father-in-law, a letter at that time, and told him of the incident. I ended with the comment, children of that age from our kid would not have even known the Gemara, but they would have helped him. My feeling then was, why, Rabbonu Sha'olam, must this be our choice? Can't we find children who would have helped him and still known the Gemara? Do we have to choose? I hope not. I believe not. But if forced to choose, however, I would have no doubt where my loyalties lie. I prefer they know less Gemara, but they help him. So friends, this is very interesting. Let me just rehash the story in case you missed any part of it. Essentially, he sees some ultra-Orthodox kids, young kids, and they see an unobservant man who is in trouble, and they go through a whole, immediately they can recall the Gemara. Do I help somebody who is not observant in this sense? And they're paralyzed. They don't know what to do. They don't, they're trying to think about the learning. And, and, and he is struck by this moment. He says, myself, in a more modern religious camp, our kids wouldn't have even known that Gemara. How, what a shame. But our kids would have helped. And I hope I don't have to choose between kids either being Jewishly literate or, or being humanitarians. But if I have to choose, this is as someone who spends his whole life in the Beit Midrash, I choose they help rather than no. So that's a very interesting predicament, a very interesting predicament where more learning leads to less action. One can be immersed in study, but they can forget kindness. The Natsiv, the Natsiv writes, and we explained that they, the rabbis of the Second Temple, were righteous and devout and toiled in study of Torah. Yet they were not upright in the ways of the world. They were kolal b- bachrim. They, they weren't kolal all day. 
but they weren't, they weren't righteous. Therefore, because of the baseless hatred in their hearts toward one another, they were suspicious of one whom they saw act not according to the opinion of the fear of God, that he was a Sadducee or a heretic. And because of this, they came to bloodshed through division into all of the evils in the world until the temple was destroyed. On this, there was justification of the divine judgment. Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu is upright and does not tolerate righteous people like this, rather ones who also conduct themselves in an upright manner in the ways of the world and not in a manner which is warped, even though it is for the sake of heaven, because this causes destruction of creation and obliterates the settling of the land. So friends, just a reminder here, this was a great renaissance of learning, and yet there was sinat chinam, baseless hatred, and because of that, the second destruction of the temple had to occur, the great exile, which we didn't return to the land for, well, we were in the land. We didn't, we didn't have sovereignty over the land for another 2,000 years. And so friends, we see once again a case where learning without ma'asim tovim, without good actions, without love for someone else is not only insufficient, it corrupts the entirety of the system. So in fact, does learning lead to action? Not necessarily. Once we have concluded that action is indeed primary, we might ask whether we should prioritize acts of chesed, acts of kindness, or acts of sadaka, acts of tzedek, justice. The rabbis explore this question, chesed versus tzedek. Our sages taught gimulut chasadim, acts of loving kindness, are greater than sadaka in three ways. Acts of sadaka involve only one's money. Gimelut chasadim can involve both money and one's personal service. Tzedakah can be given only to the poor. Gimelut chasadim can be done both for the rich and for the poor. Tzedakah can be given only to the living. Gimelut chasadim can be done for the living and for the dead. So here we see a tension between what kind of actions are we talking about? Systemic change or direct relief? And yet, friends, as Jews, we know how central learning is. We learn substantive Jewish law. We learn the stories of the early Israelites and their descendants. And we learn to be able to hold and live with the complexities of our lives. To engage in action on a high level, one needs to be able to have both intellectual and spiritual complexity. This is one of the many areas where learning may not necessarily lead to action, but rather may enhance action. We are so influenced by the sages' notion of learning. But for the prophets who flourished prior to the sages, learning meant something else. Consider Isaiah. Learn to do good. Isaiah is pre-sage. There's no books to study. What do you mean learn to do good? He doesn't mean like go sit in the Beit Midrash and study Talmud. He means learn, like go out in the world and learn to do good. Devote yourself to justice. Aid the wronged uphold the rights of the orphan, defend the cause of the widow. So here learning for the prophets means something very different than the sages. For Ramban, Nachmanides, one of the reasons for higher learning is that the Torah itself cannot give us all the answers. We must continue to learn, to interpret, and to assess the proper path. Initially, God said that you should observe the laws and statutes which God had commanded you. Now God says that with respect to that, what God has not commanded, you should likewise take heed to do the good and the right in God's eyes. For God loves the good and the right. And this is a great matter. For it is impossible to mention in the Torah 
all of a person's actions towards their neighbors and acquaintances, all of their commercial activity, and all social and political institutions. That's right. So we can't just study Torah to find the answers, although some people suggest that. We're going to need a whole other set of tools as well. For further, the rabbis taught, Rav Elazar quoted this verse. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, only to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. One of the great sources of the prophets from Micha. What does this verse imply? To do justice means to act in accordance with the principles of justice. To love goodness means to let your actions be guided by principles of love and kindness. To walk humbly with your God means to assist needy families at their funerals and weddings by giving humbly and kindly. My little daughter last night, four years old, she's falling asleep. And she says to me, Abba, I just want to do whatever you want me to do. That's what she said. She said, literally, about to fall asleep. She says, Abba, I just want to do what you want me to do, right? It's like this deep desire to like just want to do right in the world, just want to do right in the world. And for her, I mean, I guess I'm not a great moral compass, but to her, as a four-year-old, I'm a moral compass. Like, tell me what to do. I want to do right. You know, if we all had that deep desire of just falling asleep, Abba, whoever we're talking to, Ima, or, you know, God in heavens, talk to my soul, talk to my heart. I just want to do right. I just want to do right. Here, friends, we must continue to learn that which we have not yet received. The Torah is broad and expansive. Rav Kook, among others, taught that to be a student of Torah means that we increase peace in the world. Torah learning is about debate, but it is this debate that enables a deeper clarity of truth and more robust moral action. Um, okay, this next source is too long. I'm going to skip it. So anyways, but this is a source we've talked through before in the past, this idea that um, we, increase, we increase peace in the world through debate, that actually it's not only that we, um, we come to learn what is good by just the good is told to us, but the learning has to be dialectical and it has to be intention and in chavruta. We have to argue with each other to get to that deeper place of clarity so we know how to act in a more sustained way. And so friends, we must learn, we must act, but when we learn, we must engage in a type of learning that will lead to more, more action and better action. Sages must indeed increase peace in the world. So to be sure, for the Kabbalists, the realm of Asiya, right? Asiya is the realm of the Kabbalistic term for action, is not just about moral action, but also deeply spiritual transformative action. Asiya is the type of creative processing that on a mystical level is more accessible to the human actor when considered in contradistinction to the other types of coming into being. Yetzira means formation, Bria means creation, and Atzilut, emanation. So in this regard, Rav Kook was teaching here, all actions, all mitzvot, all customs are no more than manifold instruments, each containing within themselves itself a few sparks of the supreme light. We can wonder how emotions are translated into action. Susan Sontag addresses this question. Compassion is an unstable emotion, she writes. It needs to be translated into action or it withers. The question is what to do with the feelings that have been aroused 
the knowledge that has been communicated. People don't become inured to what they are shown if that's the right way to describe what happens because of the quantity of images dumped on them. It is passivity that dulls feeling. And so friends, we need a curriculum. When we go to a movie that inspires us, how do we immediately translate it? When we read a book that opens our hearts, how do we translate it? When we leave Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur from a sermon or from a tefillah, from a prayer, or from a song or a nigun that, that moves us, how do we translate? We cannot leave it alone. Sontag suggests maybe you think we should leave it alone. And maybe it'll do its own magic. Sontag says compassion is unstable. It needs to be translated into action. And now here she's not just talking about learning to action. She's talking about emotional intelligence as it converts into the behavioral realm. Rabbi Dessler, the eminent early 19th century Mashgiach Ruchani, spiritual counselor at the esteemed Ponovich Yeshiva, taught a human being who has overcome his Yetzer once feels clearly in their heart that they are distancing themselves from fantasy and resolving to grasp truth vigorously, but one who has never overcome their inclination cannot discern this for their experience teaches them that whenever they desire an evil thing, the desire enslaves them with no escape. Therefore, they cannot understand the idea of free choice because in examining the sources of their actions, they see only external causes and effects. Friends, what he is dealing here with here is one who has not cultivated an inner life of choice, of emotional intelligence, of processing, that here he's dealing with in Musar, learning that, that this is the Musar revolution, that learning is not learning text, although learning text is important. Learning is learning your inner impulses, your triggers, your desires, and learning a mastery of them so that we are not enslaved by them, that one has a desire for this or that, and they immediately act upon such a desire um, of any type, but rather there is a processing, there is a making sense of, there is a, a rigor that is involved. They can, they can stay in the space of tension emotionally without going immediately to action. So here we deal with a type of learning that is in tension with action. Don't act yet, don't act yet. Continue holding the emotion, continue holding the intensity as opposed to Sontag, well, not opposed, but in light of Sontag that says, translate your emotion, your positive emotion immediately to action. Dessler says, I see you're feeling a lot, but you gotta process it more, process it more, go deeper, go deeper. The point is not, so, so the other night, my, 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 one of my son cracked his head open running around the house. Uh, his head was bleeding. We thought we were gonna have to rush to the hospital, very scary. My, my, my daughter paralyzed in emotion, crying by it all. And another child did the opposite, was there running, getting ice and this and that. And we see like when something goes wrong, like how do we jump into action? My, 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 my dear Kala, my dear wife, who's a medical professional, she immediately jumps into action. I'm, I'm, a, I'm in some ways more the paralyzed type. Well, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? And she just jumps into action, uh, just like our three-year-old did, but our eight-year-old did not. Um, and so this is something we can make sense of. What happens when we have an emotional overload? When we have an emotional overload, how are we prepared to, um, to, to actually shut off the emotional realm to some degree in order to enhance the behavioral realm? The point is not that we are convinced that a particular action is free, 
but that we know ourselves to be capable of freedom to engage in action. This insight has enormous educational implications. Rav Cook teaches here, as a person rises in knowledge and understanding in the study of Torah and the cultivation of good attributes in their intellectual and moral propensities, they march forward toward the future. By perfecting their ways and actions, personal and social, there is open to them a great light that directs them to endless progress. So through learning, a person progresses. As they progress, they become enlightened. Their newly perceived light inspires them back to further learning and further action. And so, by the way, it's Rav Cook's birthday today. Happy birthday, Rav Cook. And so we must work to ensure that the increased action we're take, undertaking actually enhances our interaction with the outside world and our efforts at making it a better place while strengthening our inner life as well. Rabbi, Rabbi Yehuda Amital, the founder of Yeshiva Taharetzion and co-Rosh Yeshiva wrote, the acceptance of human frailty does not dictate sufficing with low levels of spiritual achievement. Rather, it means that one should not deceive oneself about one's level and should make sure that actions, especially stringencies, are consonant with inner levels of spirituality. On a similar level, the Rav taught, Judaism has always believed that wherever actions are fair and relations are just, whenever man is able to dis discipline themselves and develop dignified behavioral patterns, the latter are always accompanied by corresponding worthy emotions. Feelings not manifesting themselves in deeds are volatile. This is like Sontag here, right? Feelings not manifesting themselves in deeds are volatile. And transient deeds not linked with inner experiences are soulless and ritualistic, right? This is very important. Feelings not into deeds. This is not religious. This is volatile. But also deeds that don't accompany the inner life are soulless and ritualistic. Both the subjective as well as the objective component are indispensable for the self-realization of the religious personality. So friends, as Jews, we learn, we act, and we reflect. And then we use our ability to reflect, to learn some more, and to act on the basis of our learning as a way of making our learning more meaningful. We know the danger of skipping any step in the process. To learn, to grow, and to hold ourselves accountable we must never stop translating our learning into action and our action back to learning. Learning leads to action should not be read empirically to mean that learning will inevitably lead to action, but rather as prescriptive and aspirational, meaning that our learning should and must lead to action. Study is more important only when it's the type of study that leads to virtuous action. Many traditional communities might find it easy to keep acting in their traditional ways, failing to incorporate the inner meaning of the texts and traditions that they learn. But it is the learning that enables them to grow and to evolve, preserving some actions and evolving in others. Friends, one of the most moving images in the Bible is Moses floating down the Nile. His mother, Yocheved, fearing the wrath of the Egyptian taskmasters, sends her three-month-old child down the river, praying for his salvation. Miraculously, Moshe is spotted, spotted by the daughter of Paro, who risks her life to save him. Bitya, some people mistakenly call her Batya, but Bitya, as she is known, merits eternal life for her courage and kindness. 
When we examine the verse carefully, we will notice an important detail. The Torah describes the scene as Bitya witnesses the floating baby in the basket. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. The Midrash comments that the tears of Moshe are what aroused the, compa the compassion of Bitya. The crying aroused her mercy and she moved outside her comfort zone to save him. In that instant, she set into motion the redemption of the Jewish people. Just as God hears the cries of the Israelites, first, God is inspired, so to speak, by Bitya being aroused by the cries of Moshe. Moshe becomes the savior, prophet, and master teacher of Torah. But the catalyst for that transformation was her attention to the crying baby. Okay, friends, so to move us forward, we must never forget the baby who is crying. This message can be crystallized in a well-known story about the Baal Hatanya, Rav Shnir Zalman of Liadi, the first Lubavitch Rebbe, and his son, Rav Dovber. When Rabbi Dovber was a young man, he lived in the same house as his father. And one night while Rav Dovber was deeply engrossed in his studies, his youngest child fell out of his cradle. Rav Dovber heard nothing, but Rav Shnir Zalman, who was also immersed in the study in his room on the second floor, heard the infant's cries. The Rebbe came downstairs, lifted the infant from the floor, soothed his tears, placed him back in the cradle, and rocked him to sleep. Rabbi Dovber remained oblivious throughout it all. Later, Rav Shnir Zalman admonished his son, no matter how lofty your spiritual involvements, you must never fail to hear the cry of a child. Rabbi Yehuda Amital mentioned earlier, repeated this story often. He explained that this was one of the founding principles of his yeshiva, to learn Torah, but still hear the baby cry. In this vein, he explained that when he saw the plan of the study hall and it did not have windows, he immediately requested that the study hall have big windows installed. A house of study must be connected to the outside, the outside world to hear the cries of the world outside. We must always aspire to lead lives of faith, but never at the expense of ignoring the cries in our communities. When, ex when ex we express compassion, when we hear and act to alleviate the cry of the baby, our deeds may be the catalyst for a world of redemption, goodness, and peace. Friends, our learning must enable us to hear and to respond always to recognize the potential impact of our actions. So here, friends, I open it up. I open it up for this, um, this this conversation around our learning and our actions and the relationship between them. Please, please jump in. Well, Rabbi, do you think Heschel would be another modern example uh, of the need to convert faith and knowledge and study into action? Heschel is such a great example of this because he is uh, both a scholar of the prophets and of Agadah, right? They called Rabbi Soloveitchik halachic man. He was called Agadic man. He wants stories, not laws. That's his interest. He wants the prophets, not the sages in a certain sense. And he wants us to live in, in, with a little less barrier to action. The prophets, they see and they respond. They see oppression and they rage. 
He wants there to be a little less peel pool, a little less stuck in the academy, a little bit more of the prophetic spirit. And so I think he is a great example of someone immersed in learning and immersed in the civil rights movement and immersed in that process of action. Part of the problem when you're a sage and you're an activist is that sage life leads you to keep resolving it, keep toiling until you have moral and religious clarity. Activist life calls you to act when you don't have total clarity yet. When you see a moral problem and you need to respond immediately, you need to be able to respond quickly to a humanitarian crisis. If you're a sage, you might need to step back and analyze more, get more information, engage in the process, be slow. Be slow to respond. We should be slow to adapt to this new moment. And so here's the tension. How can we be both? How can we both be analytical and critical and really analyzing, but also be on the front lines? And this is not just an activist question. This is a question in our own lives as well. Some of us know we are impatient. We run quickly to respond to anything that mo the moment it happens. Other of us know we're very slow. We're very slow, we're thinkers, we wanna make sense of everything happening, we're not ready to act. We can challenge ourselves where, on wherever we are in that spectrum to go a little faster or slow down. And one of the great things about partnership, either in the workplace or in a, in a marriage or in a home, um, is if your partner is a little bit of a different side than you. It's funny, we normally think of that as annoying. That is so annoying, make your decision already, right? <laughs> Why are you so slow, right? But actually, it can be a great compliment. It can be a, a great compliment. <laughs> my, my mother was in charge of watching our two oldest children last week when their school hadn't started yet. And, and she, she plagued me and my brother with this when we were kids also. When we had a conflict, she wouldn't resolve the conflict. She said, you guys work it out. You work it out. And so my son, he, know, he knows what he wants. My daughter, she wants to think about it for a long time. So they had to kind of duel it out all week. Like, are we going to do this activity or that? And she let them kind of deal with it. So yes, Michael, I think that's great a great point about Heschel, how he kind of models that balance. And let me just follow up with one other yeah. thing. Yeah. You, you are a model for us in both study and in action. And does that, how do you deal with that balance? Well, that, that, um, um, that's very kind of you. I, I feel like I, I do think about this issue a lot. I, I, I'm very far from uh, any level of mastery on this, but I do think about this tension all the time because um, I do feel the need. I, I, my experience tells me that in moral crises, we don't have the luxury of sitting back and waiting. Um, for complete clarity. And yet my experience has also shown me how rash decisions can bring more, um, can bring more heat than, than light. Um, and so I actually think one of the ways that I think Jewish learning is so powerful is that we think about situations before they occur. If you don't think about moral dilemmas until they emerge, you're not prepared. But Jewish learning is about, about contemplating moral dilemmas before they emerge so that we can have the clarity when they emerge of, of how will I act? If I was one of those kids seeing this happen, would I be prepared to run into the burning house? Uh, you know, that, you know that, that's a flame. Would I be prepared to get arrested for this cause? Well, what about this cause? What would I do with a, a canteen in the desert, right? And not that we, can, we should come to conclusive, this, you know, uh, uh, not, not, you know uh, we should come to full conclusions, 
but that ultimately we are prepared for the moral dilemmas that emerge more or less and how we will engage with those. And so I think that I think that our, our community in many ways is, um, is struggling on both fronts. I think we oftentimes see, um, we oftentimes see a lack of kind of collective reflective space on um, our intentionality as a community. And I think we also see the lack of evolution, the lack of trying new things and evolving and kind of being quick to respond because for, you know, for, for, for other reasons. Um, but suffice it to say, this is like one of the, one of the frameworks I'm constantly, I'm constantly thinking about. The other part that emerges is the profit doesn't work for consensus. The profit gets clarity in acts. In communal leadership, there may be some times to work in a prophetic spirit, and yet there's also a place to work in a consensus model where you bring people along, you organize community, um, and that takes time as well. And so the, the, the tension is not only between the learning and the action, but also acting on a pace with, that also works for people we're trying to bring along with us at the same time. So lots more to say, Michael, there, but thank you for thank you very much for uh, for raising that. Um, because it is it's exactly the way we think of VBM. We think of VBM as a place of learning and a place of action. And sometimes there's a disconnect. And sometimes we really try to bring it along, right? If we have a certain understanding about um, anti-Semitism or about racism or about Sadaka, how do we not just implement an action program? But in, you know, implement first an educational uh, framework before we think about the next steps. Thank you. Yes, Lauren. So when I really, I, I've been thinking more about it as you've been talking. So learning to me and it should involve much more than just Torah learning, and even with and Jewish learning, it should involve uh, Musar which is so important for Menschlichkeit, one needs a little bit of Kabbalah and all that, but it, you also need a secular learning. And, and I'm thinking in terms of what happens in Israel when you get such rigidity and really like shtus, I mean, some of the stuff they perseverate is like, you know, God forbid I should help a woman that fell on the street. It happened to me. So, you know, it, it, it's frightening or the kind of learning that leads to people being Kahanists. Then I also think of like guys like Rabbi, uh, my kind of heroes, like uh, the late Rabbi Sachs, um, who had such a broad knowledge, which led to action, which led to him speaking out in parliament. And of course, your rabbi, Rabbi Avai Weiss, who I think you probably patted yourself on in some ways, I think, because he was very learned, but fine. He was out there for Soviet Jewry. He was one of the first uh, for women's uh, tefillah network. And so I think that good action can come out of good broad learning. Poor learning, the wrong kind of learning can lead to bad action. Yeah, great, great. So you, by the way, one, one mention of Rabbi Weiss, just a th um, he, uh, he wrote an article this week um, about 30 years since the Crown Heights riots. And it was a very, um, um, it's a very complicated story, a historical story. And he talks about how he protested Mayor Dinkins extensively based on the 
um, on the decision around um, around around a particular murder case that that, that emerged there, and, um, and and how he reflects both upon defending Jewish security and building racial uh, racial uh, uh, addressing racial divides and building bridges, and um, it, it's it's a very powerful piece as he reflects on that um, and how he has. Uh, he, he has in his career called out anti-Semitism um, in the black community throughout his career and been called kind of a racist in times doing that. And how he's tried to balance both building bridges with the, the African-American community in New York while also um, standing up against anti-Semitism. I, I recommend the piece regardless of whether you end up agreeing with the piece or not. He is a person who has always been very quick to act um, and quick to act boldly. And I have learned a lot from that model, um, especially since he emerges from a world that is very slow to act in many ways. That's why he was such a radical figure. Um, rabbis are often very slow to act the, uh, for many reasons. One of which Rabbi Weiss oftentimes had very little job security. They're like, why is it he here at Shabbat in the synagogue? He's like in a jail because he was doing civil disobedience like all the time. He's like out in Europe, like protesting something in Europe. He's just not there. It doesn't show up. Nobody knows where he is. So, you know, so is that an irresponsible professional move? Is that a morally brave move? So in any case, um, I, I, I appreciate you bringing him up as a model. And I appreciate your point about Rabbi Sachs. Rabbi Sachs is the opposite. Rabbi Sachs, if you're going to accuse him of something, you're going you're gonna to call him a coward. You're going to say he's brilliant, but he never acted on his moral beliefs. He wasn't, he wasn't engaged in leadership. Now, that's a little bit strong uh, because Rabbi Sachs has, has such broad shoulders. Uh, but I've heard people throw on throw around that term. He wasn't willing to take a stand on anything. But I continue, and I know I will my whole life, find inspiration from his books and his teachings because of how broad he was intellectually and 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 the, the type of moral compass he had. It's true, Rabbi Weiss is not going to write books that are morally going to inspire through deep intellectual analysis, but he's going to be a moral leader in the streets in, some, in many ways. And Rabbi Sachs is not going to be a leader in the streets. In fact, that was his big, the big critique in the UK. How can he be a chief rabbi? He's not around. Where is he? He's talking with priests and imams. He's over traveling the world, writing books. But where is he in our community? But, but his books will inspire for generations to come. And so it's almost, a, those two are almost a good model of like, what do we offer the world? Do we want to leave our ideas in the world? Do we want to leave our actions? What will your children, if you have children, what will your children say about you? Will it be things that you taught them? Will it be things that you they saw you do? Is your legacy things you have done or things you have said or, or have taught? And that's it's so, but yes, you're exactly right, Lauren. It certainly includes the secular. And I would include in there not only the study, um, but also film and art um, and cultural exchanges, all these things that can broaden, broaden ourselves uh, very deeply. So thank you. Thank you so much. Just a quick question. Yes, Scott. Um, I think it was going back to Michael's question, which is uh, thought very good. Um, do you think it, it's um, um, helpful or uh, effective or efficient maybe to try and set goals in either the learning or doing realm? You know, like, I don't know, this summer I'm going to read, you know, all of Josephus or, you know, or like, or like, you know, I'm going to donate, you know, X percent of something to the poor, you know, like, do you think like concrete 
milestones or goals are helpful. Absolutely, absolutely. And so this, the, 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 the sages teach that um, quantifying is, is crucial. Quantifying is crucial. That we should find systems where we can have behavioral measurements for what we want to achieve. They, they called it Kovea Itim. Kovea Itim means setting aside time. They said, right. how much time will you set aside each day for learning? What percentage of income will you set aside for tzedakah? They want us to quantify what we are going to do in the world. Of course, there is the realm that can't be quantified, the, qual the, 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 the qualitative dimensions, the part of the inner life, the, the realm of experience. But the other part they want us to quantify is chazaka. Chazaka means three times. They believed that once you've done something three times, it becomes significantly easier to do. Mm. Right? You've uh, fill in the blank with whatever we want to do three times. And so they think the beginning is not, not knowing what's, not having perfect intentionality, but doing the things. They call it lolishma balishma. Come start doing the right things for the wrong reason and allow the right reason yeah. to emerge as you continue to engage in it. The like Rambam is the strongest advocate for this. Maimonides is a strict behavioralist. You wouldn't believe it as such an intellectual. Maimonides thinks it's all about repetition, that all human learning is through, is through repetition. And not, 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 I don't want to overstate that. Not all human learning. The most profound shifts, this is the month of Teshuvah, of Elul. The most profound shifts are not through some deep emotional resolve or some intellectual conclusion. It is, it is, it is conditioning ourselves yeah. to do more of these things. And that's why he thinks, and this is problem for utilitarians, he thinks if you have a million coins, it is better to give one coin a million times yeah. than to give larger chunks small amount of times because he thinks it will transform us in that process. And so that's the first that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing, just to your, your great point here, is um, this is where Musar comes in. Musar comes in and says goals are not enough. Goals are not enough. It's like a diet, right? That all the studies show why diets don't work. Why yeah. they fall apart and, you know, isn't it? Because that goals are not enough. Goals need a few other things. They need a community. They need accountability. Goals need uh, assessments and, ref and re reflective measurements to reassess. They need actually um, to break down the, the mental barriers that are blocking us from achieving the goal. It's great if I say, oh, you know what? Rosh Hashanah was great this year. I'm going to be a nicer person. I'm going to try to do nice things every day, right? Amazing, great. And, and how long is that going to last? Right? How long is that? I mean, we know empirically that New Year's resolutions last like a few days, right? right. They last like a few days, right? And we know also end of life, end of life resolutions last a little longer, but still very short. Someone gets mm -hmm. hit by a car, they're in the ICU, they leave ICU, they say, wow, am I going to live differently? I'm not going to eat red meat anymore, or I'm going to start living with happiness. But I'm going to really invest in my relationships. It fades very quickly. And so resolutions, goals, not enough. Community, accountability, breaking down the mental and emotional barriers that are blocking it to fulfillment, creating systems in our life that ensure we can maintain such commitments. Very good. Very helpful. Yeah, the uh, 
Steve Ballmer, when he was the CEO of Microsoft, he had like five personal assistants or whatever, but one of them, her only function apparently was to make sure that he was spending, I think it was like 20% of his time with customers. So she would review his calendars and keep coming back and saying, nope, you didn't add up to 20%. Like, so he was trying to create kind of the, at least the, the time allocation. Now, whether he actually went and followed up with IBM or Exxon, who knows, but you know, he was at least trying to create kind of your point, the system. So that's interesting. Yeah. Thank you. Let me, let me say one other thing here. And I, I think some folks may disagree with me, but um, one of the reasons I, I appreciate Jewish law, let's bracket, let's bracket where we think Jewish law came from or whether it's true or right or good, is that I think some things in our life we should make obligatory. It is great to have things in our life that are a little looser, right? I want, maybe I'll do it when I want, like I'll do it if I feel I'm in the mood, I'll do it when I have time. But what are the things in our life that say, I am obligated to this? And some of us may only have two or three things like that. Some of us might only include the things that might put us in jail or get arrested if we, if we cheat our taxes because you know we're afraid of what would happen. But some of us may have hundreds of things like this, hundreds or thousands of things like this. Things that we say, you know what? I don't want this to be in the realm of choice. I have enough choice in my life, but some things I need to move into the realm of obligation, right? I am going to lock this into my life. I'm gonna lock in this type of act of kindness or this type of giving money or this type of how I show love in the world as obligatory. I'm not gonna keep, so President Obama, I heard the story that when he moved into the White House, he said, I never wanna choose my tie anymore. He said, we have choice fatigue. We can only make so many choices in our day. I wanna, I have so many big choices to make. I don't wanna make any little choices, mm. you know? And one of those little choices ha have to be like, I don't wanna choose my clothes because like, if I'm choosing my clothes, it's an extra layer when I'm trying to make other choices. I think this is a powerful thing to think about. What are the things in our life that we love that it's a choice? Oh, I walk into uh, to the coffee shop and I love deciding, is it a frappuccino or a latte or just a plain <laughs> coffee? I love that I get to like change it up. Oh, and other things, oh, I'm gonna get the same coffee every day. I don't need to think about that because I'm thinking about what, you know, about my next big, you know, my next big, uh, my next big idea. So that's another way to kind of think about this. Here. What are the things we're gonna lock in solid? And mm. what are the things we're gonna keep a little loose? Awesome, thank you. Thank you so much. Rabbi, uh, I wanna say thank you very much for what you've said so far. This has been very enlightening. I wanna bring up something that you have brought up uh, in passing so far uh, on this topic. Uh, it was, it's actually kind of reflective of the, uh, a little bit of the poll. Uh, there was some rabbi, uh, he was mentioned in this book called Let There Be Light. He's a free, he's one of the guys behind, the main tenets behind either the Creek Kabbalah. But he made the arguments which anthropologists supported the notion that when it came to understanding uh, one does action, one does the action and then does the learn and then one tries to understand. By understanding one has to do the action. Uh, I think this su subject was brought up um, in a passive way, but and I know that there's disadvantages to that, but I like to gauge your thoughts on to the, the reverse of the idea, because you mentioned the idea of study then action, but I'd like to know your thoughts on the Okay. Amazing. Okay, great. So first of all, this is rooted in the Torah. Naseh v'nishma, right? They say at Har Sinai, 
They say, we will do, and then we will learn. They didn't say, oh, let me make sure I totally understand this, and if I want this, and, and what that really means, and then I'll figure out how and when I want to do it. They said, no, no, we're going to do all this stuff now, and I'll figure it out later. It's like becoming a parent. Your child is born, and you don't know what you're doing, but you got to start doing it. You got to start doing it. What do I do? I had no idea. My wife had babysat for years and had nieces and nephews. I literally have never changed a diaper, never burped a baby, like had no clue if you hold the baby upside down, you hold them up this way, like. How do you, you burp a baby from the toes? Like, I don't know. Do you feed the baby in the ears? I have no clue, you know? And so I, I just got to start doing it. I'm going to learn as I go. They said, we're going to do it. And then we're going to learn it, right? And further, I think one of the brilliant things about Jewish enlightenment is that Jewish enlightenment is through mitzvot. Enlightenment happens through action. It is true for the Kabbalists. There is the space of, of, of reflective life. But the primary vehicle for enlightenment and Jewish thought is the realm of action. And so that's, that's really interesting. The idea that the sages had already said learning because it leads to action, but also we see this idea of action. Actually, it's not, it's not sequential that the, that the learning happens not after the action or that it leads to it. The learning, the learning, the enlightenment happens within the action. I'm in the moment of doing, and in the doing, I'm being conditioned, I'm being broadened, I'm being expanded, right? It's an amazing thing to see this. It's like, it's like, um, uh, you know, experiential learning, experiential learning for adults or for children, where, um, I, and we don't engage this enough oftentimes, is, is, is where we feel this transformative experience, partially because it, 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 it awakens all of, our, all of our different faculties. And so um, I, I, I really appreciate this point, Eric, because I think that we've been very influenced by an Eastern sense of enlightenment, of kind of isolation, quiet, meditation, something I very much appreciate. But I think the primary Jewish vehicle towards enlightenment is the experiential, is the encounter. It emerges in a noisy place rather than a quiet place in many ways. Could you say that one of the challenges that we all have to think about is, is our balance between the two, which is different for every person. And that maybe one lesson is that we need to think and understand how we're balancing that to help us in terms of, of figuring out what, what and how we're gonna do. Yeah, 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 I love that. Thank you for that. I think, I think you've, uh, there's not much to add to that. I think that's a great, it's a great challenge for us. Uh, this is one of the cases where in the debate, there's not a, a winner or a loser. Um, there really is um, a deep value on both ends um, and, um, and a real challenge to each of us to kind of incorporate this on the next level. Because I think one of the terrifying things that emerges is that when we learn deeper, 
we may actually start to see that some of the actions we considered virtuous are actually not. Um, and some of the things we considered vices are actually not. That in the learning, if it's truly transformative, it might actually call us to live very differently, very differently. And I say that's terrifying because it doesn't, some learning is reinforcing of what we already know to be good and what we're already doing is good. And some learning calls into question some of the big, some of the big things in our lives. Um, and, uh, and it may ask more of us, it may ask less of us, um, but, it, but the real learning means we don't know where it's gonna lead us. Right? Learning that we're totally controlled, it's like in a little Ziploc bag, we won't let it out, right? Is that learning or is that just kind of putting a little fact in our head? Learning can be scary because we're not sure how it'll change us. So thank you for that. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, time for one last uh, question or comment. Someone, yes, Steve. Hi, uh, can you hear me? Yes, Steve, we hear you. Oh, good, good, good. This has been my absolute most favorite argument of all of the arguments that we've talked about for two reasons. Number one, I have learned that you don't feed the baby in the ear. And, <laughs> and second, learning is in the action. Just a personal reflection. I have always had difficulty processing things that were presented orally. It just, it just does not res it resonates, but I can't remember. And yet I always feel phenomenal when I attend these arguments. There's something about being with others and hearing messages and hearing people say things that they might have been privy to and nobody else has known that fills me with joy. And so less about the specific topic today and more a thank you to not only you, but to everybody on this forum here today it is music to my ears thank you thank you steve um and thank you for reminding me how to feed the babies it's very very important uh, <laughs> let me close with a blessing here based on what steve shared here um that um uh just a little bracha for for, for everyone here um around mistakes and failures you know we're very intolerant of mistakes and failures many of us and um We've all heard the idea before of a CEO. They say, oh, this guy just lost our company $2 million. You should fire him. And the guy says, no, that was the best $2 million investment I could have made, right? Because of the learning experience this person had. So too with children, we tend to think when a child does something wrong, that they should be punished. Punished, it indicates their vice. It, indi it indicates the kind of child they are. But rather, right, that the embrace of the child in this moment is a way of of, 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 of deep learning. It's a deep learning moment for them, their mistake. And so too, the tolerance of ourselves that all of us have made mistakes this last year. We've, we've, we've had our own flaws of, of, of integrity or of, of meeting our commitments. Um, and to be more gentle with ourselves and see each, look back at our mistakes and not just beat our chest about them, right? But also like hold those mistakes, hold those flaws and see them as learning opportunities. Right, see those actions that we made or didn't make as big learning activities and giving everyone the bracha that in the coming year, we should continue to infuse our learning with action and infuse action into our learning in order to repair this world and not only the broad world, but our inner worlds as well. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you all so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember, that you can join our email list at valleybaitmadrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, 
learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.